Professor Cornish, it is a great pleasure to interview you for the archive. Thank you. You have an illustrious career. You were professor at London School of Economics, yes. uh, English law for 20 years. You retired. Yeah, that's, that's correct, yes. You retired from the a chair at Cambridge and you have a reputation for introducing into the UK system the teaching of intellectual property. Yes. Could we start with your early life? You were born in 1937 in Adelaide in South Australia. Mm -hmm. You are recording this? I am. That's it. Okay. That's the main recorder over there. That's the the good one. Okay, fine. (laughs) Fine. Um, Well, I thought we should perhaps get things going by by saying just a little about my family background and then to its relation to the colony of South Australia where eventually I grew grew up because it's quite an interesting and distinctive history from the rest of the history of Australia. Yes. Um, So shall I start on that by saying? Please, your your parents, perhaps you could start with your your family background. Sure. Uh, my uh, father was uh, a young and poorly paid solicitor when he married my mother in 1935. They both done degrees at Adelaide University. Um, and uh, were, were settling down after the worst of the Depression, I guess it was important to remember. I was born two years after 1935-1937 and my sister was born in 1940 and that's the family group we made and stayed together. Um, One curiosity perhaps is that uh, my mother and father were first cousins, um, two sisters marrying men outside that very close relationship and I always just wondered a bit about whether that affected who we were and what we went on to do. Um, Because although it's been accepted since the 17th, 18th century, that marriage between first cousins is a necessary rule, particularly for the landed aristocracy and gentry in England as they were uh, organizing the property affairs of their next generation down, which was very much part of marriage for them. Marriage between first cousins, they were called cousins German, and I've never quite understood that. That must be a derivation from Germain, I should think. Um, They they were thoroughly permitted and and heavily relied on in some circumstances when there wasn't a free flow of heirs in a particular family, but maybe just uh, a, a girl who was inheriting the whole lot eventually. So the not turned on it. Anyway, it became accepted and in our family there was a distinguished doctor who said it was perfectly all right. So they did marry. Um, but both I and my sister in in various ways had some mm. mental instabilities. Much worse in her case than mine. I've been able to cope. Uh, but 
she had the added disadvantage of being a rubella baby. I wonder if that will be understood. Uh, a, a mother who is pregnant catches German measles during the pregnancy and it does quite a lot to the fetus. Uh, and this, there was a whole burst of it in just around the beginning of the war in South Australia, uh, an epidemic of the actual German measles. Um, my poor sister had to have two lots of holes in the heart operated on and it was the most terrible strain on her. And particularly after that, poor woman, she um, had periods of serious schizoid disturbance, times when she couldn't actually form a statement that made any sense, and also a lot of paranoia against people. So she, uh, she poor woman, um, contacted cancer in her early 40s and died of it by the time she was 51. Gosh. So Did it was she? really a tragic history. Yes. And my mother, of course, felt guilty about it always for having had the German measles. Yes. Did, did um, your sister remain in Australia? Yes, yeah, she toured overseas. Yes. But yes, essentially, yes. She, yes. she stayed in Australia because she had to live with my parents yes. through this really yes. bad time. Yes. And that's an important factor within the family. Very. But there, there it is. Yes. Um, otherwise, my parents were a very happy couple together and we lived a quiet day-by-day -day life in the atmosphere of South Australia, which was essentially a placid kind of place with none too grave distinctions of class, for instance. Right. Some serious religious differences, particularly Catholics and Protestants, but nothing like in, for instance, the state of Queensland, where a third of the population was Catholic. And that was very unusual for any part of the empire, I think. Yes. So, um, I would very much like to say something about how South Australia came to be founded and why it's different. So can we turn to that? Thank you. Um, South Australia was formed as a colony by sending out a small fleet of ships under the command of Governor Hindmarsh to be the first representative of the Crown in the place. Um, in what was thought to be completely unoccupied and developed land, except for whatever Aboriginal tribes used this as part of their, their internal lives. Um, so it was being founded on unknown territory, which in fact was carved off from the huge state of New South Wales. Now, New South Wales, and then Victoria, and then Queensland and then particularly Tasmania had all really been founded to solve the problem of transported convicts from Britain, including Ireland. And uh, South Australia was the only colony in uh, Australia which was a free settlement entirely. And it comes about in the 1830s very 
significantly, I think, because by then, the idea that the empire could be a large and continuing block of power used to be said that it can, it, it, in the end, it came to contain a quarter of the Earth's population in a quarter of its area. That's huge, isn't it? Yes. So how did how did it happen then in South Australia? A group of liberal thinkers, somewhat radical, much influenced in general terms by Jeremy Bentham and his utilitarian model for judging all political questions of significance, had got quite a grip on the public imagination through publishing and, and journals and so forth. And some of them had got into positions in government at quite a high level by 1830. 1832 is, of course, the first year where, when there is any, any real parliamentary reform uh, in Britain of the House of Commons. Uh, so it's all happening at once. It's a disturbed time in, in, in Britain to some extent. Uh, in the middle of this, there was coming to be considerable concentration on how colonies should develop for the future within the empire. And a young man called Edward Gibbon Wakefield wrote a letter from Sydney, where he'd never been, but it was being reported on all the time by that, that stage. And the letter from Sydney had a simple economic plan for free settled colonies. Uh, colonies. It was that land would be sold at 12 and sixpence an acre at least, a high figure for people with some capital, uh, and nothing below. And so uh, a corporation was formed, the South Australia Company, to go to this unknown piece of territory and set up a free colony um, in which investors would be placing their money through buying land as the main funding of this whole, whole operation to begin with. British government being represented by a governor and those essential administrators to run any sort of political system, but as little as possible. So it was very liberal in that sense. It was to be the investors who went. And the whole point was to reproduce British country life society, the landowners on the one hand, and a larger labouring population who would never amass the capital of the sort to invade the territory of the, the upper class. So straightforward, but with the 12 and sixpence an acre, uh, there was a formal regulation being imposed by government and really Wakefield's thinking was so simple and uh, unappreciative of how dreadful human beings can be, <laughs> well as purposeful and decent and so forth, that almost immediately the economy went completely haywire because at least the British investors sat there buying and selling land in a bull market and none of the work being done in this patch of scrub, there was nothing there um, to turn the land to good use, whether it was public utilities like roads or food production, which was very crucial. 
and indeed within five years, a group of German emigres who were sort of driven out of um, the, the bit of Prussia that was beyond Berlin, not very nice territory, so they came. And they went up into the hills behind Adelaide and began producing food. Very tough, they had to clear the land. Um, it was a better climate because it was somewhat higher and not so parching in the summer, not like the, the fires that had been last week in Adelaide. Um, and so they helped to get it going. But then people with some intentions to, to do things with their land soon enough found that they could um, begin to make quite substantial profits, particularly in sheep for wool, to some extent for meat, but much more for wool, so it could be exported. And copper, which was found there because a sheep, uh, a sheep kicked a piece of rock and it turned out to be copper colored. <laughs> um, so the place did show within a decade that it had real economic potential and it got going on a broadly private ownership, uh, employment of cheap labour bases and some somehow survived through that. But you, I hope I've given some sense of the risk that was involved and the stupidity of thinking you could just say, we'll sell it to you at so much. But it, but it got going, and there's just oh, it's a, it's a, oh, a very fascinating history in many ways, and we can't begin on it. But there are two areas that have something to do with my later career, and so I think worth emphasising. The first is that because uh, land was being bought and sold so rapidly, and there were very few lawyers coming out in these first ships. If they were coming, they would probably do some, something like running the customs service. Um, uh, and so titles to the land very soon got mi mixed up. They weren't properly surveyed, so there could be mistakes and overlaps and it was very unclear what responsibilities to collaborate in road making and so forth were being imposed on these people. So the whole system was pretty much hated by those who wanted to make money out of it and the lawyers were deeply distrusted for a lot of them probably wasn't directly their fault. That led uh, by the 1850s to a strong movement to take conveyancing of land away from the private lawyers uh, and away from it being secret because nobody else could see what the title deeds were until they bought the land or whatever and replace it with a public system of registration in which crucially in the argument the government would guarantee and therefore pay compensation to weed out mistakes and get things settled on a pretty straightforward grid pattern. It wasn't little winding country roads at all. Uh, so it was certainly possible. It was much debated. The lawyers kept on saying that you couldn't possibly run a conveyancing system except on the one that they knew and loved. But 
public opinion in this small community was so strongly hostile to what had been done between 1836 and 1856 uh, that it looked as though there would have to be political moves to introduce this public land registry with the, the government backing uh, of, the, of, of the exactness of the titles. At the same time, and, and this was largely managed, may I say, by Sir Robert Richard Torrens, who had gone out there to be the person who formed the customs uh, op operation in the early 1840s. It's a bit muddling because his father was Colonel Robert Torrens, and Colonel Torrens had played a major part in setting up the South Australian Company um, and giving it its directions uh, in various ways because um, he was quite a central figure writing in the um, politico-economic uh, world of the times and then connected with the, the, the larger names like McCulloch and Nassau Senior and so forth who who are the generation after David Ricardo in the political economy movement. So the elder Torrance was all very much part of that and had sent his son out because they were all, the family was interested in what would happen in this colony that they'd helped to create. So it was the younger Torrance, the man who becomes Sir Robert Richard Torrance. After Afterwards, an MP for Cambridge, would you believe, <laughs> when he came back to England in the 1860s. But before that, he'd gone ahead with a will and seen that the registered title would be set up. But he did one other vital thing to respond to political strain, was to create a second professional body alongside the lawyers who were both barristers and solicitors, a second body of land agents who were just knowledgeable in how to transfer title on this new register, which was going to take up all the land in the colony. And uh, he got his act through in 1858, and for a short while he became the, the premier, the leading politician of the colony, because two years before that, in 1856, it had been granted limited independence with a, a, a two-chamber two legislature. So things were moving strongly towards something like a, a more formed political community, as well as all its land stuff. Yes. And the effect, of course, was since the land agents could charge a good deal less, they didn't have to, to find a long period of training and so forth. They just learned about how you'd run the titles register. And they became a large and successful profession because their fees were cheaper than the lawyers. And the consequence of that was that in South Australia, the legal profession was very much reduced in its importance and size compared, for instance, with the uh, eastern seaboard colonies of Australia. 
and it was still essentially like that, certainly when my father trained in the 1920s as a solicitor. And uh, when we, our group of law students, were going through in the second half of the 1950s. That is very interesting. That would yes. have been the career that the prospect that awaited you had you remained there it for a time. It would indeed. Yes. Uh, certainly. Um, the state, the royal state from 1901 onwards as part of the Commonwealth. So they turned from being colonies into states. The state of South Australia, by the 1970s, is producing more commercial demands on the lawyers' agreement because there was a growth of mining, uh, a growth in the car industry, which con was conducted in South Australia because wages were cheaper than in the eastern states. Economics d d dominates so much of this. Uh, early, early, early history. And that really brings me to the second special point I'd like to make, which is that, of course, any decent, reasonably liberal society is going to breed moral ideas and want them inculcated, particularly through education. All the direct services of religions and South Australia had to do a bit of learning about that. It had, for instance, been sent out with no government official to form a, a South Australian police. That had to be done by about 1844 years because convicts started to come from the eastern states when they were released. They were the big fear. But on beyond that and on a much wider perspective. Colonisation throughout the empire was deeply affected by Christian movements of one kind or another to establish higher moral virtues of one kind or another as well. And by 1850, 14 years of operation, uh, the Church of England was certainly in a prominent position and from Britain was putting a lot of money into building its position up. But numbers of non-conformist sects were moving out as well, where the workers came from, for instance, Cornwall tin mining needed in South Australia, so many came. Um, and, and many other names scarcely, scarcely heard of in Britain at that stage were also positioning themselves. So one fascinating thing that happens very early in South Australia, because it doesn't have so many problems from the convict state states, is uh, that the Church of England, responsibly led, decided not to continue as the state religion it had been assumed to be, the established church. Um, the Anglican Church. They asked to surrender and disestablish themselves in response to some pressure from the other sects, of course. But this establishment came in 1851, you know, long before Welsh disestablishment or Irish disestablishment, though it's in, in the ethos there too. 
in, in many ways, these Australian colonies were becoming melting pots for new ideas. It was 10,000 miles away. You didn't have to worry. Government in, in London could only reach by letter or ship transfer of some kind. The telegraph doesn't come until 1870. And that, of course, makes a huge difference in the strength of British interest and all this. And that's not until 1870. Um, so the religions were left to get on with it, disestablished as far as the Church of England is concerned. But interestingly, well-led, and may, uh, may I just mention the name of the first Bishop of Adelaide, whose name was Augustus Short, came out after a successful academic career at Christchurch, Oxford. Um, he actually tutored Gladstone, would you believe? <laughs> uh, he arrived with a, a good display of free and open ideas about education and is very influential. He gets there in 1847 and immediately sets up a church school intended for them sons of the successful farmers and so forth. And it was called the Collegiate School of St. Peter. This grandiose title, college of course, reflecting his Oxford experience and his wanting to draw on it. Um, and so that became St. Peter's College and I went there and it, uh, it's also abbreviated in lingo there to saints. I went to saints. Yeah. And it continues to this day. As such. It's been highly successful. It isn't even um it's it's unisex. It's a male college still because it's so so much in demand. And that's true of one or two of the other schools to establish by the Methodists and the Presbyterians and so forth. So, uh, Bishop Short arrives, sets up his school straight away, the government give him land, and he found, finds um, people rich enough then, mainly in the colony, to start putting, putting money in a charitable sense. So it does blossom, uh, at least to a reasonable extent. But that's not the end of Bishop Short's interest in the welfare of the community as distinct from worship and, and, and understanding of complex doctrine. He worked purposefully for 20 years to get a University of Adelaide established. And he achieves that in the mid-1870s. He still has five years to run before he retires and goes back to England. So he's there for 30 years. And in many ways, the university is probably his most interesting achievement because he was deeply imbued with the ideas that for all the glories of Oxford and Cambridge, their syllabuses, particularly Oxford's, which he knew, was amazingly 18th century in that it was the training in the classics starting at school and going, going on there, and not much else. Modern subjects, like any history later than Rome, uh, <laughs> and 
even mathematics wasn't stressed as much in Oxford as it was coming to be in Cambridge, part of the scientific turn that is such a prominent distinction between the two universities even today, um, were not regularly taught. It was a sort of finishing school for the aristocracy and gentry and the big middle class as it began to get more power and influence, particularly after the First Reform Act of 1832. So changes in the air, Oxford and Cambridge were batting about the question of how far they should, could possibly change. Um, Bishop Short was quite clear that in a new colony you had to be teaching the young generation what they could do for the economy as well. And so insists on a, a major place for the, uh, the new sciences like botany, like ge geology, uh, both of which would prove to be directly important, engineering and modern languages and some history so that all along it was going to open on quite a wide purview and when people appeared with money to donate to it who wanted to turn it into their university sit on the council, dictate what was going to happen, conformed rather limited conservative views of what should happen. Short was just short with them. Yeah. Very, very dignified, of course. But he was not standing for that. And he set Adelaide University up on a really remarkable path for the number of people who were in this still very small colony compared with the grow growing New South Wales and Sydney and the growing Victoria and Melbourne. They were the other two places that had a university at this stage and there were distinct marks of non-success about the university in Sydney in particular. It had a tiny number of pupils. It's fascinating. So it actually was, it led the way in terms of in, in many ways, education. yes, it, it established this yes. attitude to yes. modern education that you must be able to take a, a tertiary step and yes. learn what was really tough. That's uh, right. I mean, you think that, you know, you as an outsider, I look at um, South Australia on the map and it seems to me, well, Adelaide, South Australia, it's you know, fairly, it's a large state, you know, very, very large country, but it all seems very remote. Yes. From everything, and yet there was this flowering at the, the The right people in the right time, I think we now look, look back on it to say, to see. Um, you certainly characterise how remote it was and how remote people felt they were. They were interested only in the concerns of the colony, not the whole of Australia, where competition was in the air, um, where the cities that had big labour populations and therefore the growth of trade unions and rather rather belligerent uh, way in both Sydney and Melbourne were a new cause for unrest. Adelaide didn't have much of that. Um, it was a placid, rather complacent community 
uh, no great social distinctions. People knew their place all right. Yeah. Um, and and uh, short, short had a lot to do with that. I mention this because the University of Adelaide, has, which is having its 140th anniversary, uh, has just published a new biography of him in relation to the university. And for me, at least, it's very interesting reading. Mm. Um, as you were growing up, did you feel a sense of remoteness as you, when you were particularly, after you sort of got, gone through your childhood and you went into boyhood, did you, did you feel that you felt isolated to, at all? No, I did, didn't know how isolated we were in a way. And as I would say in a minute, I had a chance to come to England for a year when I was 17. And that's when I realised how cut off we were no newspapers that have any anything much other than idle gossip and co content in them um pretty poor well the radio facilities were somewhat better because there was a government institution the australian broadcasting commission sort of on Reithian lines to the bbc but there were private commercial uh, stations which no doubt were very much more popular um but that that was part of the the educational conspectus that people had of the country that you should have both of things available to you. Um, and cut off, we undoubtedly were. You see it now in what is left of the old dominions, more in New Zealand, because they were poorer than Australia was through the latter half of the, of the 20th century. Uh, but they too are catching up now and doing more industrial things, not so dependent on, on sheep and, um, and cattle. Uh, so it's, it's important to get an impression of this. Because I did somehow or other, partly through going overseas so young, acquire a very strong will to get to European society and to be part of it. I wondered about um, that. Because I'd had you know, a bit of experience of it at the right time. Yes. When your mind is completely open. Yes. So before you had that wonderful opportunity, that gap year, you had a very happy and uh, productive, fruitful yes. school career at Saints. So shall I say something about Saints? Please. I don't think there's a great deal to say. Any um, teachers that you recall, perhaps? Yes. Uh, it had, of course, only had headmasters who were ordained priests of the Church of England until about the time that I got there, which was in 1945. Uh, but it had a full conspectus of education from a pre-prep through a prep to a senior school, as we called it. And that would lead to doing the compulsory state exams, which were set at three levels then. Um, and that set a pattern by the law of the state as to what would happen. There were then complicated arguments about um, state funding and the religions, particularly as the Catholic community had grown and it did tend to provide schools for ca ca 
Catholic boys, to some extent girls, um, which were quite good. Um, and so the, the Catholics demanded of the state that there would be very substantial subsidies for running what was still their schools. And as you can imagine, some of the orders were in uh, running the schools of Jesuit Christian brothers and so forth. Um, so what did saints give us over time? Needless to say, it was streamed in intellectual ability terms. So by the time you got to the top, school, top of the school, there were four classes um, and they did adapted things. I, I was in the top stream. That was all very encouraging. What, what did we get? We got English literature, well taught on the whole. Uh, languages, we had to do two. Latin and French, in my case. Very sorry not to have done German because of what happened to me afterwards. You get all these things right. Nothing else. No Asian languages then. They would come within 20 years after that need to be able to talk to our nearest neighbours. Um, I mean, the idea, the idea of teaching Japanese in Australia in 1945, the end of the war with Japanese, would be beyond Ken, and just wouldn't begin to get off the ground. So languages, maths, these are the good old days of the slide rule and the the logarithm tables and so forth, all gone now completely. Um, in our case, I think reasonably well taught on, on old fashioned lines. Um, divinity, of course, which mostly meant reading Dorothy L. Sayers, The Man Born to Be King. <laughs> the whole English speaking world did that. <laughs> uh, and then a sort of science. Uh, track and a sort of arts track. Um, science was just uh, physics and chemistry, and the uh, the arts track was uh, history, geography, in the main. Some good teachers, particularly those who had either come back from fighting or didn't go but continued to run the school, they were old hands. But finding by the 1950s, finding good new teachers as, as they were being brought out from some part of Europe or um, Britain, Britain, Ireland, of course, was very difficult. So there was clearly just a, a huge shortage of manpower. Perhaps so, some had joined up, some had gone to war, perhaps. Oh, clearly, yeah. yes. Yes, if you think of the huge losses. Yeah. All the fractured personalities who came back out of Japanese prisoners camps beyond belief. Yeah. Um, but we did then have a particular headmaster called Colin Gordon, who was not ordained, perfectly acceptable of Anglican Christianity, but determined to do something to broaden uh, and, uh, quite a clear educative sense, our understanding of the world. 
so he brought out people who had um, Jews who had had to um, escape to Britain, mainly a few. And uh, so he himself was having um, a considerable influence on where the school was going. One of the previous headmasters had made sport compulsory, and that consisted of PE in the morning <laughs> between <laughs> subjects and either compulsory cricket, rowing, tennis, or football. Well, it was all football in the, uh, in the winter, and that was Australian rules football, a variety of Irish football in a very broad sense. <laughs> Um, and so uh, this was very, sport was very much part of the ethos of the, of the whole school. I'm not a sportsman, I'm afraid, so I missed out a good deal on that. Um, but there, there was a cultural life as well, and we always did a school play, and I did in various of those, and that was fun. And there was a bit of music, but nothing like teaching instruments on a, a regular basis to large proportion of the, at least people under, under the age of, say, 12. So nothing to carry through, there was no orchestra. Yeah. And that I was sorry about because I've always had a strong and keen interest in classical music and hasn't really shifted. So that started in your, pr in your primary years and you were able yes, to Yes, in my primary years I took private lessons. I see. From teachers who were at the university's uh, conservatorium, the elder conservatorium, um, which had started right with the beginning of the university. I could never take to physics, I found <laughs> chemistry much more colourful. <laughs> and it's also been quite used to me later life. Um, so, Professor Cornish, extramurals, plays that you took part in, perhaps did you take part in, uh, you know, dramatic productions? Not much well, whilst I was yeah. still at school. Right. The university then filled in and right. there were various things we did. We did reviews and all those things. And, um, after all, there was Dame Edna appearing for the first time in Australian life and we all listened to her all right. Extraordinary that that has gone on as long as it has. Sometimes rather embarrassingly. Uh, so yes, the the things we done I did, did quite a lot of music at university as well. And that's a lifelong pursuit and Yes, yes. It's been, been a good hobby for me. Yes. I'm no great performer when it comes to going on the concert platform, but uh, I've always enjoyed it immensely. And we did do some good touring around the country districts in Australia uh, when, I was, when I was a law student. So that was excellent as well. Now, where have we got to? This the university. No, no, my gap year. Your gap year. Yes, I, I wondered about that because I'd assumed that you went straight from university to Oxford but you obviously had this wonderful introduction. Oh yes, no, it comes after my school after career school and before career. I start my before undergraduate degree. Right. So I, I really was pretty young. Yes. And to contemplate going 
to impact oneself. Well, of course, the local kind of modern fears that there are now about children being let out on their own. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, my mother went and consulted the good headmaster about whether this would be appropriate. And he thought I was fidgeting to, to get away and do other things. I could have stayed on at school for another boring year of directing younger boys how to behave and that kind of thing. Um, so he backed it. And the opportunity was to go and work with the Reverend Tubby Clayton. I don't know whether he's a name now who means anything to you. But shall I say just a word about him? He was a, an army chaplain at the outbreak of the First World War. And you'll know how terrible Northern France and the Yves Salian were for Flanders. Uh, for battle conditions, trench warfare and gas. Frightful things happened. And Tubby Clayton um, set up a house for sort of not so much recreation as recovery, ability to get out and away from the battlefield and lead something like a human existence, even if only temporary. And in its smallish way, it was a great success. It was badly, badly needed. And he had the open, strong personality to turn it his way. So there was a chapel upstairs and there were places that people could stay and evening entertainment and so forth. Um, and this became known as Tok H because those are signalers terms for T-H, uh, and the actual name for the premises was Talbot House, after a man called Talbot who had been killed sometime in 1915, I think it was. And after the war, Tucky and many associates who'd been involved in this turned it into a peacetime movement, thinking primarily of young men to begin with and you know, those who had survived. But it, with, with time it acquired uh, a women's, women's, girls and women's movement as well, the same kinds of concern about uh, Christian, good, communal living, finding ways of getting jobs, realizing your full potential uh, out in the workplace, essentially. And so they started setting up separate houses around London and then in a few provincial cities. And it grew as a movement very considerably between the two world wars, which after all is only 21 years. I need to remind myself. And um, with the depression in the middle of it. So it was one of those movements. It's Tommy died around 1970 and with his great personality disappearing as a figurehead, it has gradually wound down into being a local branch organisation where people have the enthusiasm to keep it going. But it's like Rotary and um, Lions and so forth, various encouraging people to do really useful things as a way of forming their own personalities, mostly at a young stage. 
though it certainly had its time. It's, it, it, it was a great movement. And when you went across, did you go by sea? Yes. Yes. Stopped at Southampton, perhaps? Tilbury. <laughs> which, of course, was the first big shock, shock that I think personally I had. Because Tilbury is a train into Liverpool Street. And in 1955, it was still just bomb devastation wherever you looked. <laughs> All of the East End, more or less, had gone. Just living here and there, still ten years after the end of the war. Yes. After your sedate existence. Yes. Yes. Adelaide never saw anything like that. There were very few bits of invasion into anywhere in Australia. More fighting, of course, than the terrible conditions of New Guinea, but not on Australia. Um. So. Tully Clayton liked to have young men at command who would organise parts of his day and get him where he needed to go, exercise a dog, um, all, all this. And he had another, you know, an, an accountant or secretary who stayed up all night writing, uh, taking dictation and all these things. And he was also by then vicar of All Hallows by the Tower, a well-established church then. Uh, right next to the entrance to the Tower of London. And so he worked through that parish, which was largely offices and, and uh, ma- major authorities like the Port of London Authority was, was there. It's a very exciting place to be. He had a house in, in one corner of that, close to where there was a strip of the Roman wall of, around the city of London, which he had done a lot to sort of have preserved and built it built up again after the war. Because that's you know, strongly his, strongly historical interests. Yes. And doing something about them. But all Hallows was very sadly bombed. Extremely badly. And so by the time I got there, fifty five, he was deep in the middle of a campaign to erase from around Top H, effectively throughout the British Empire the monies needed to restore the church and to find the architects who were a good form of firm, a good firm of architectural restorers, adding where they had to, to whatever the building had been, but essentially interested in putting back the churches as they had been. So that was going on. And then there were all these top H branches to be visited from length, length and depth of, of England, we went to Land's End and we went to the Orkneys. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Did you drive to the Orkneys? Uh, we drove to Inverness. And there was a little plane and you could oh. take there. Oh. We landed. We had, we had to land in Wick first before we went over oh, Stafford Flow. And so you know, so much of the war was still very proximate there. And Tuppy himself had spent time as a chaplain on the Orphans in the Second World War. So he knew a lot of the people and the Navy was much installed in the Orkney Islands. Um, so it was fascinating meeting them and discovering that they were not Scots. Yes. Their loyalties were to Norway, if, if, if anything, that's where many of them had come from. And they'd been a big seafaring group um, but certainly from the beginnings of steam onwards. So, sacred people, we saw them. 
and uh, my father came over from Australia for the first fellow he'd ever had from his dogged solicitor in, in, in Adelaide and, and I think thoroughly enjoyed going around with Tubby on some of his work including the trip to the Orkneys. He loved that. It just sounds the most marvellous opportunity. Yes, it was, undoubtedly. In a way, the sort of the die was cast. Yeah, it, it was cast, through, your cast perspective. through that yes. experience. Yes. Sure. And Tommy seemed to have taken to having St Peter's College boys that had been a couple before me and several afterwards. Um, whilst, whilst he still needed that kind kind of assistance. And he was he was pretty hale, more or less up to his end, which was pretty elderly. Must have lived to be nearly ninety. So yes, it was just a great experience, and I met he he didn't think in class, class terms what he did at this court, mm -hmm. and he was very careful to keep his visiting going to those who might have power and influence over what happened to the movement. So we did meet grab people who lived on Hyde Park and all that. <laughs> but uh, he would go anywhere, talk to anybody about their, their problems. So I learned a lot about humanity and how, how you manage it with skill mm. while still being, a, in his case, a very prominent personality. If he came into the room, everybody talked to him and he talked to everybody. So yes, it was a great experience. He found me a trip back. I came on one of those old, I don't know whether you know, Peninsula and Orient boats, mostly starting with Scottish sounding names. And ours was the Strathnaver. Oh. It was, was so ancient after 30 years use of something that it was one class. That's the first time that the end is nigh. <laughs> um, and uh, on the way back, he found me a, a berth because there were usually a few going in a in a in a cargo ship, which was going out to Australia, and that was also an experience. Gosh. Ate with the officers, learnt about the life. A lot of gin was drunk. Sounds absolutely superb. Yes, yes, it was. The thing I I've not yet mentioned about the. Uh, the time in England was that Tubby Clayton had established a well-funded, American-funded scheme for mostly university students to come over, particularly from the eastern states of the United States, as Wynant volunteers. Wynant had been the um, US ambassador to Britain after Joe Kennedy had to return home. <laughs> Um, and Britain was, was much involved. So they came for three months, the money was found for them, and they went and worked in the various settlements and parishes, particularly in the east end of London, including its southeast end. And in, in amongst the pictures I'll show you in a minute, there is a picture of the group as a whole, and you'll get some impression of just how large it was to organise for. Gosh. They went to Oxford for five days at the beginning to be briefed really on what, they were, what was going to hit them when they got into these places. Very different from Oxford. <laughs> and we also together 
did a large trip, sea, sea, and sea and buses, I think it was, to the war f fields of the um, of the Flanders. That uh, was west of the city of Ypres and, and, and Brussels, so the west end of, of course, terribly battered Belgium. Much of it still First World War battering, still still to be seen. So it was a tour of the First World War sites that he had known and, and worked for. And yes, we walked along lots of remains of trenches, and we went to Passchendaele. And we, we saw a lot of the cemeteries, which the British in particular had done so beautifully after the First World War. Really? They just stretch up still. And of course, a lot of people are visiting this, this year. It seems to become a tourist trap. Yes. It must have been very moving, basically. Yes. Yes, it was. In a kind of un, unstressed manner. We, we knew what we were looking at. And it was great to meet these young Americans. I met very few Americans before that. And sadly, I haven't really kept in touch with most of them. We all went off and did our own things. You get over, overtaken by student life, don't you? Yes. Um, so that was in the, in, in the summer that I, I was with them. I also got in three, three weeks with a French family to do something about my French. In which I bicycled for four days from the a little little plane took me and my bike and my uh, suitcase over over to where the Seine comes out in, into the sea in Normandy, and I bicycled up the Seine, really? camping at night in on, a on tiny your, tent that I had on your own. Yes, that absolutely on my own. Yeah, yeah. And so it gave me, if nothing else, the smell of old France, because they smoked the most fumous black tobacco. And <laughs> everywhere you went, there was just this smell in the towns and villages. And they were pretty poor still, many of them. And this uh, journey that you undertook by bike was, was this planned by yourself? You. Uh, yes, we, we found, I can't remember how we found the basic link in the family, except that it was a lady called Miss McPherson who did this kind of finding for people to place them as French families. And she got some small cut, something tiny, I would think. Uh. <laughs> so I, I paid them to have me, and I guess my parents funded that. And very useful it was. Intrepid to say the least. Yeah. 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 It's just so sad to see Paris in ruin, ruined condition suddenly with these dreadful events last week. Extraordinary the way they've sort of galvanised this response. Mm. They seem to know exactly how they feel about things. Mm. There's no ambivalence. Mm. No. And they're not going to stand for it. Yeah. Whether that lesson is going to be learnt so that it all comes down or just makes it worse. 
So that's about everything up to uh, going to university in Adelaide. What you returned and you enrolled at Adelaide, and as I understand, you did an LLB, you didn't do a pre degree. No, because that was not the system. Not the system. No. Yeah. It was simply a law degree. Right. And, uh, the, the, um, and that all changed in Australia, as you know, uh, about 20, by about 20 years later, when so many more people were going to university. There were more universities. Still, in South Australia, there was just the University of Adelaide in 1956 when we started. So that was where the law degree was. And anybody who wanted to become a practicing lawyer or eventually a judge would have to go through that channel. And had you always planned to do law because of your father? No, no, I hadn't. I didn't have much idea about what I wanted to do at university. So in the end, I just slipped into doing a law degree somehow. I had very little impression of what it would be. Again, we had some good teachers, um, particularly those who were full-time university staff. But they were in short supply. The uh, law school in Adelaide had a professor the Benithan Professor of the Law after the donor who provided it. And it was occupied by a distinguished man who'd been a Rhodes Scholar to Oxford, Dick Blackburn. Um, but he was m wanting to move on into practice and did, in the end, become a federal judge uh, and did a, a fine, fine job, I think. There was a New Zealand Catholic called Daniel Patrick O'Connell, who was taking up almost for the first time in Australia public international law. He came to Cambridge and he came to Cambridge and did, did yes, yes, O'Connell everywhere yeah. on the law of the sea and, and all the things he did in his all too short career because he died when he, in his mid fifties. Um, Did he teach you, Professor Cornish? Yes, yes, he taught us jurisprudence. Uh, he was certainly a self-willed man. So our jurisprudence course got as far as the last great saints, as it were, with it. <laughs> Catholic writing, Catholic writing of this kind. Um, in other words, the mid-17th century. And after that, it was all Bentham, you know, we just dismissed out of hand. But we learned quite a lot from Dan. Um, and the brothers who came, because the, the law schools in Australia were beginning to fill up with people from all around the empire who could teach the common law in some, in some sense. And some of them were very good. Some of them were even second generation Australians from immigrants from Europe were able to take a broader look at civil law backgrounds and, and so forth. So it was beginning to change. But some of them, particularly the more practical subjects, uh, were simply taught by practitioners and the little Adelaide legal community. Some of them just came and read out somebody else's notes. You know, bad as that. That's how we learnt land law. 
So, uh, but it wasn't all darkness. Uh, some very learned people who talked to us. And there was one Leo Blair who taught us Roman law. He had come out with his very young family of three boys or whatever it is, including Tony, number two, uh, to the p political science department because he was a Scots lawyer trained in, in Edinburgh. So he didn't mind in a year when most of the permanent staff are overseas collecting themselves either degrees or wives. <laughs> <laughs> um, he didn't mind coming over and teaching Roman law, of course, it's part of the Scots tradition. But particularly when his wife went back with the children to England and he stayed on to finish the year, he became a, a great social figure in our little, little circle of law students, because we were very small. There was only something just over 20 um. in a, a whole year in the 1950s. And that, of course, all follows from what I said earlier about the legal profession as a whole being tiny in the place because of the, the land register and all of that had come to mean with land agents yes. challenging the lawyers. So, uh, Leo Blair was great fun. He really was tremendous. And I hope still stays that way. He's pretty sick. I don't think he's died, but it hasn't, hasn't been easy. And he's over in Wrexham. Uh, I can't report on Tony. <laughs> he didn't come our way. Oh, I haven't have met him a couple of times since. Um, so we got through a respectable uh, set of legal subjects. Um, much influenced by, particularly by those who had been to an English law school, such as those who went over on road scholarships uh, to Oxford, and people like Dan O'Connell who went to Cambridge because it was the place to do international law work then, as now. Yes. McNair and Lauterpacht, big names like that were all here. Right. So he got he got the right spot. <laughs> And then there was a question of what to do next. And most of my group only thought in Australian terms, hadn't been overseas. And uh, I had, and I think that's where it made all the difference. I really couldn't wait to get to a better, a better law school, more in the centre of change on the front of legal, legal education and by incredible luck I was in the first year of the British Commonwealth Scholarship Scheme which is being started between mainly the, the, at that stage the Dominions and, and, and Britain um, and, and I was lucky enough to get one of the scholarships so this, this was a huge expansion there used to be two Two, two scholarships a year to get to Britain out of the whole state of South Australia. Well, we weren't, weren't a big, and, and that's for all subjects. Gosh. So it shows you how remote and primitive it all was, comparatively yes. speaking. 
it would change quite soon afterwards in much the same spirit as the Robbins report induced a vast expansion of university places and so forth in the early 60s uh, in this country. That's all nothing up the scale, of course. So uh, that was the chance to, do, to go to Oxford and do the BCL degree, uh, which is my tutor there described as the, the best law degree in the world. I think he was talking just common lawyers, but he didn't mean such words. So you arrived probably at the start of the term in the gloom of an Oxford autumn. Wet, wet, cold Adelaide spring. Absolutely. But not quite the cultural jump leapfrog that it would have been had you not had that wonderful gap year. Yes, that's why I found it easy, longing to get back. Yes. See what had happened to the country in, in in four years. How much had been repaired in, in the later fifties, bringing it back to something more like the civilization it had been. Um, and of course, there were exciting years of sixties. Uh, Worldwide student student unrest. Yes. Well, I hit that, but I don't hit that until nineteen sixty-eight. So we'll leave that to the next session. Right. <laughs> Because the LSE, like where I was yes. teaching my then, was a, a, a hotbed of radicalism, and everybody who piles on in on those occasions would be seen on the battleground. Right. Um, so, Oxford. Uh, Oxford ran its degree then quite sensibly, in my view, so that those who were coming from outside Oxford hadn't done an undergraduate degree there, were required to do two years study. Those who'd been at Oxford did only one year. They did just the specialised courses. We would have had a year of being trained up to their level so that we could be with them, as it were, in, 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 in the second year. Very nice. And of course they've changed things now so that most people do it in one year still, I think. Right. But I'm not actually up to date on that. Um, so there we were in Oxford, and suddenly I was amongst a hive, uh, a cohort of highly committed legal students. The Adelaide crowd hadn't been quite like that. There were three or four of us who were uh, struggling to do something serious academically there. But this was totally different. And there were great teachers around. Did you um, encounter? People like Hart, for example. Hart, I heard, deliver the concept of law as he had written it out in his bed in pencil that morning and, and gave to us. And I do remember the room being full of strident Americans lis listening to him because they always had something to say. Boy, they, they crashed in with their own theories and so forth, so that made it more exciting as well. Yes. And Herbert Hart also took was one of a bunch of people who were building up a course on criminology for the first time in Oxford. And it was great to have him and some other very uh, interesting people, including Rupert Cross, the bl famous blind lawyer of Morton College, Oxford, whose real subject was the law of evidence, cross on evidence. Um, and a number of other 
really significant teachers, probably doing better than anything much that had gone on in Oxford before the Second World War and the arrival of the Jewish emigres looking for academic posts. That, of yes, course, made yeah. such a difference to yes. academic life yes. here, as we all learned from the great book by Beetson and, and Zimmermann. Mm. Yes. And, of course, the work of Kurt Lipstein. We had two entries in the book. Indeed, indeed. But also kept the whole connection with civil law as a major preoccupation in Cambridge, as opposed to the school which believed in particular we should never be joining the European community and the constitutional changes that were being made at that stage to the idea of parliamentary sovereignty would wreck us in the end. Yes. Very prominent. Yeah, be represented in Cambridge, not only from by people from this country, but also people coming from countries like South Africa. Oh, really? Colin Turpin right. was very suspicious of what was happening. Yes. And I guess I think Tony Weir was. Tony Weir undoubtedly was. Obviously, but yes. I just remember reading and a book review which he used as a. <laughs> to carve somebody out. <laughs> yes. Um, so, in some, some respects, Cambridge was slow along that, surprisingly, given its rep building reputation in public international law and the difference that someone like Lauter Park was making to the place in that field. A really distinguished scholar. Um, so, uh, in my BCL second year, when we were doing subjects new to most of us, and there was this highly competitive atmosphere going on. Um, in particular, I learnt a lot from the best scholars. My tutor, at, I was at Warren College. The law tutor there was the redoubtable Peter Carter. His two subjects were evidence and private international law. So we had to opt for them as BCL subjects. And we could go off and do criminology, jurisprudence and so forth as well. And that was a, that was a really stimulating experience, it was. So I started to look around towards the end of that about how I could stay in Europe. And one thing was to go to the English bar. And I did do my bar finance. At the same time, I noticed that. No, no not quite. No, oh, uh, but in the year when I first started teaching, I, I, I did that with, yes. with a view perhaps to stay in that. Um, and uh, there were other things going on as well. There was some interesting civil law teaching run by two rival institutes, one in Luxembourg, I think it was Luxembourg, and the other in Strasbourg, in the at Easter each year, three weeks or something. But it, you know, it was contact with yeah. uh, other traditions, uh, very likable people. I did go and teach on it myself a bit later on and enjoyed doing that. Where the money came from it was undisclosed. 
This was people trying to get their own act into position so that they could be some influence. Like what we would do in Warsaw 30 years later. Um, and it was a chance to do it all in French. Because French was the dominant language. So, yes, interesting. So it sort of this experience must have begun the sort of germination of some of the ideas which you developed later in your experiences Indeed. with Warsaw Indeed. and so on. Yes. 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 Um, so then there was the possibility of teaching in England. And uh, Mr. Carter went down to visit a very grand friend, a great human, Otto Kahn-Freund, was at the LSE then. And, and Otto said, we have a, an assistant leadership going. Uh, got, any to, got anybody to apply? So I applied immediately. And amazingly, after a terrible interview, I thought, got the job. So that really fixed things. Yes, yes. A, a major event. Yes, yes, from which, from which I yes. Never looked didn't back. look back. No. No. It was clear I wasn't to be a teacher and not, a, and not have a life of dealing with clients and putting sort of. arguments for them and trying to think out what the other side was going to say and all that stuff, which would have been a career at the bar. But I'll say a word about that when we get on into my career as it developed, I think, because I did go and do a pupillage in order to become a sort of competent intellectual property lawyer yes. whilst teaching at the LSE. And that yes, is all possible. Looking also. back, you know, how you found time for all these. Yeah, just I just went in and did them. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, everything was easier. What was expected of you was more limited than one tests like the REF and I couldn't have had a career like mine doing a lot of little things on a pretty broad scale in the present generation unless there was some magic subject there that no one had ever looked at or was being important for the f first time and look, look worth making a career of. That's what young, youngsters face today. So when we finally come to your scholarly work, it will be fascinating to hear how you, you know, you, you came from Adelaide, you came to this milieu, strange foreign milieu, and you basically picked up a ball that had actually been unnoticed by others, and you you ran with it. Yes, uh, It's yes. very, very fascinating that perhaps having come from a strange milieu, it gave you some insight into what could be done. I, I think it did. And I found a lot of like-minded people at the LSE. It was really led by great figures like Carl Freund and, and Gar of Company Law. They were well ahead of uh, much of what was going on in what were then regarded as the fringe subjects. Oh, yes. <laughs> Things we wouldn't dream of sending kids out, out without these days. Yes. So. Well, Professor Cornish, um, in our second interview, we could we can hopefully start with your time at LSE and yep. take that through 
until your retirement in Cambridge. Okay, and that's then, fine uh, by me. the third interview will look at the scholarly work. So okay. if, if you think that there's anything, there's nothing more that you can add at this point, all I can do is thank you very, very much for a truly fascinating account, which Good. I'm very, very grateful. Oh, thank well, you so much. Yeah, well, I've quite enjoyed having to think back through it all and wonder what I should stress. So I think I've covered what I wanted to say. Thank you.